So I'm going to start off our time here by uh, reading some powerful 3,000-year-old God-breathed words that express the great passion that the writer of Psalm 119 has for God's Word. Now realize um, that the words law and precepts and commands, your word, statutes, decrees, your promises, all of these point to God's Word. And so if you get a chance to read through Psalm 119, it's a pretty long one, but if you can read through it in like one sitting or whatever, you'll realize that as you read the, the different verses, every verse refers back to God's Word in such a way. It's, it, it should be encouraging to you. It should be challenging to you as well. So I encourage you to do that, uh, reading Psalm 119. We kind of go over that real quick because it's such a long psalm. We think, how many verses are there? I'm still going. And, but if you pay attention to the verses you're reading and not try to pay attention to where the ending is, <laughs> you'll really enjoy Psalm 119. You will probably get a few songs out of there that you go, wait a second, I've sung this before. So Psalm 119. But let me share a few portions of Scripture from that psalm. Uh, one from uh, verses 89 through 93 says, Your word, Lord, is eternal. <clears throat> it stands firm in the heavens. Your faithfulness continues through all generations. You, you establish the earth and it endures. Your laws endure to this day, for all things serve you. If your law had not been my delight, I would have perished in my affliction. I will never forget your precepts, for by them you have preserved my life. And then uh, verses 97 and 98 Oh, how I love your law. I meditate on it all day long. Your commands are always with me and make me wiser than my enemies. And then, so, and then uh, verses 103 through 105. How sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my, my mouth. I gain understanding from your precepts. Therefore, I hate every wrong path. Your word is a lamp for my feet, a light on my path. And then uh, verses 143 through 148. Trouble and distress have come upon me, but your commands give me delight. Your statutes are always righteous. Give me understanding that I may live. I call with all my heart. Answer me, Lord, and I will obey your decrees. I call out to you. Save me, and I will keep your statutes. I rise before dawn and cry for help. I have put my hope in your word. My eyes stay open through the watches of the night that I may meditate on your promises." All of these things pointing back to God's Word and the value of God's Word in our lives. And we are on our ninth Sunday uh, of the series of Understanding the Bible. We're just about done with this. We have one more Sunday to go. And uh, we're looking at the, the various principles of hermeneutics, um, the, those principles for understanding and interpreting the Bible. Um, in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 15, a verse that I trust that we all can uh, attach to, and be reminded of the value of handling God's Word correctly. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who does not need to be ashamed, and who correctly handles the Word of truth. And that do your best, do your best, that phrase there, make every effort, endure, labor, be diligent, exert oneself, use speed, make haste, just make sure you, you pour yourself into that Scripture and, and learn about it. Now, I trust that you've been doing that, doing your best in regard to handling God's Word correctly. And, and so far, uh, we've talked about a couple of things here. One is the, the aim, the author's intended meaning. 
and, and, and uh, we talked about what that all uh, was about, and we also talked about context, making sure we don't take verses out of context. Uh, you know, when it comes to correctly understanding a passage scripture uh, of Scripture, that context is king, and we need to make sure that context is always before us. So, uh, we've been going at this series for about at least nine weeks now, and we're going to wrap it up again, like I said, next week, by uh, looking at several more principles, like the principle of uh, consistency and priority and caution and application. Probably doesn't mean much right now, but hopefully it will mean more after next Sunday when we look at those things. All these things, again, trying to help us gain, gain tools to be able to understand the Bible better. Uh, that, that book you have before you that you read for devotions, that you study for Wednesday night Bible studies or whatever other Bible studies you have, is uh, something that we need to understand as much as we can with, uh, with the help of God. So, as you can see from the, the title this morning, we are going to unpack two key principles for understanding and interpreting the Bible. Uh, the, the principles of observation and then the principle of genre. So, uh, first of all, observation. Observation is a very basic and a very important principle in understanding the Bible. Uh, in fact, it is, a, is foundational because the better the observation, the more, more accurate the interpretation. And the more, more correct interpretation, the better the application goes on. So it's important to have that observation start out uh, really well. Observation is about not forcing your ideas onto the Bible, but letting the Bible speak for itself. As you read through Scripture in a Bible study, it's very important just to let the words come to you and you observe what you're reading. When you start to study a passage of Scripture, don't be in such a hurry to say, well, here's what it means, or uh, you know, this is what uh, the application is all about right here. Slow down. Listen, think through it, reflect through it, observe all the different things that are there in that portion of Scripture first. In a very real way, understanding and studying the Bible is, is kind of like playing detective. You need, to, you need to grab your pen, your notebook, or you need to grab your tablet, whatever, and, and rope off the area with yellow tape and carefully, systematically look at the scene. Observe what's there in that portion of Scripture that you're reading. So there are three keys to good observation, and I want to share those with you. Three key good observations. Three good observations. Three keys to that. One is beware of your presuppositions. Beware of your presuppositions. Presuppositions. There are things uh, you already think or know or want to be true. That's what those are. Every one of us has presuppositions. We all carry baggage that gets in the way of our understanding of the text. And we go to a Bible study and we already know some things and then, oh, we can easily see that in Scripture. And then we try to apply it real quick. Um, but where do we get these things? Where do we get these presuppositions from? Uh, they come from other people. They come from your pastor. You <laughs> come on Sundays and hear uh, sermons. They come from Sunday school teachers as you go through them. Bible study leaders. Um, they come from... Uh, your parents, if they taught you God's Word and got you through that. Uh, they come from books that you read as well. They also come from culture around us, how we live our life and, and the things that we experience in that way. And uh, life experience in general, where presuppositions come from as well. 
but also to our previous time studying a passage. I mean, if you studied a certain portion of Scripture and you know, like if you, if you studied uh, Philippians 4, 4 through 8 quite a bit, and you're going through a study in the book of Philippians, you're going, oh, I can't wait to get to Philippians 4, 4 through 8 because I've studied that. I know what that means. You have some presuppositions about that, and we, you need to make sure that you, you are careful with that and beware of those things so that it doesn't guide you. It allows God's Word to speak to you for that moment at that time. God's Word is living and active, and it's going to be something that uh, is, it, you, you read a verse that you've read many, many years uh, uh, all the time, and, and, and then you come back to this verse, you read it again, and it means something new. That's being aware of your presuppositions and being able to lay those aside a little bit so that you are able to get what God's Word is bringing to you. <clears throat> For example, in Jesus' day, nearly every Jewish person had the same presuppositions about the Messiah. He would, he would be powerful. He would be an earthly king who would establish a Jewish world empire. Of course, living under foreign uh, rule for centuries, being occupied by the Roman army and living a thousand years removed from the glory and power that they had under David and Solomon, it fueled uh, much of this misunderstanding of what the Bible really said about the Messiah. So they had a lot of cultural and life experience about that that, that uh, skewed their thinking. And this misunderstanding about what the Old Testament said about the Messiah is the foundational reason why they murdered Jesus. He was not the Messiah that they wanted or expected. So beware of your presuppositions. Another, good, uh, uh, another key to good biblical observation is to observe the text, then explain it. Observe the text, then explain it. It's probably a hard thing for us to do because we want to rush straight to the bottom line, especially if we have been to that passage many times before and feel that we have pretty much figured it all out. I mean, how many of you want to go to John 3.16 and go, I think I see something new? Uh, you, you've been there many, many times before, and you, you think, well, I'll try to see something new here. An example, uh, Genesis 22 where Abraham sacrificed Isaac, and almost immediately we want to apply it to God's sacrifice of his son, right? Naturally. But if we do that, we are bypassing this crucial step of observation, and we will probably miss something else. We are claiming to have uh, solved the case before we even rope off the area and pull out our, our notebooks. Um, but remember that we are trying to play detective in this. We're trying to Search all the different details about this portion of Scripture. And if we observe the text, especially in Genesis chapter 22, verse 5, we might notice something about worship. It says, He said to his servants, Stay here with the donkey while I and the boy go over there. We will worship and then we will come back to you. Worship? Really? At a time when Abraham is going to kill his son, he was going to worship? The importance of giving to God what is worth to Him, worthiness, worship to Him. Even in a time where there's stress-filled moments like that, we need to stop and give our worship to God. And so if you skim over that, racing right to the fact or to the, to the idea that, oh, this is just like God giving His Son as well, you might miss some other lessons that God is trying to teach you in this portion of Scripture. So notice things like this, uh, uh, noticing things like this should lead us into a third key of good observation, which is ask a lot of questions. <laughs> ask a lot of questions. When you read a portion of Scripture, 
You know, who is speaking? Who is being spoken to? When is it being spoken? Where is it being spoken? What is the occasion or circumstances around that situation? What is going on with this portion of Scripture? What is the main subject of the text? All these questions. And you just you got to open your mind up to be able to go, okay, what kind of questions can I find out of this portion of Scripture? Which some Bible quizzers here probably should have a good time doing because that was part of their lessons in, in, uh, in studying uh, the, the portion of Scripture they had to do in forming some questions from that portion of Scripture and providing the answers as well, too. But uh, asking a lot of questions. What does the chapter reveal about God? What does it reveal about the salvation you have in Christ? What does it reveal about the life God desires you to live? All these things. And then look for things like key words. Words that just kind of pop out to you. Uh, Look for repeated words and phrases. Because when they're repeated, there's something important there going on. Uh, Commands. Are there any commands in this portion of Scripture? Are there any warnings? Are, Are there any comparisons? You'll see a lot of comparisons in Proverbs. And that's important to look at and notice. The contrasts. Are there any promises as well, too? Is there something being promised? Is there a promise being fulfilled? And you go back in context to see what that's all about. So look and keep on looking. Ask questions. Keep on asking questions. Uh, Just drill that portion of Scripture. If you're studying God's Word, just drill deep and uh, see what God has for you as far as uh, observing the text there. And God commands us to do our best to handle God's Word correctly. And when, when we take aim, when we take the author's intended meaning, and we respect the king context and observe the text like a, a detective, we are on the right track. We also need to both understand and work within the other principle, the principle of genre. And the word genre is a French word that basically means a category or classification. And you've all probably gone to Redbox. Or maybe back in the day, Blockbuster Video, they get the VHSs. Uh, they have the different genres that you can pick from, the categories. If you want to watch Netflix or Hulu or Amazon Prime, you, you, go, you go ahead and you can find the categories listed there, of the kind of genre that you want to watch. So when, when you walk into Barnes & Noble, the same thing happens too. You see thousands of books arranged by genre, the, the categories. And, and the 66 books of the Bible are, are full of many different kinds of genre. And what I'd like to do is, is uh, real quickly give you 10 of them <laughs> and uh, be able to help us look at these portions of Scripture, well, not really just look at them, but notice that there are a, a bunch of different genres within Scripture. And it's important to know about the genre as far as when you look at Scripture and you study it. Um, and... Uh, Keep in mind, the writers of Scripture were very aware of the different types of literature in use in their day. They chose specific ones in order to accomplish the purpose they intended. And not only that, they expected their readers to understand what they wrote in light of the genre they used. So, for example, if I wrote a poem to you, I wouldn't intend for you to use it as a science document, okay? On the other hand, if I wrote a history paper to you, I wouldn't want you to discount my thoughts as just poetic. David was being very intentional when he chose to write about his sin with Bathsheba in poetic form in Psalm 51. That should not surprise us because we choose to communicate in different genres all the time. 
Would you use the same style of language to write a grocery list as you would a report at work or maybe a letter at a, uh, to an attorney or, Lord help you, a Valentine's Day note to your spouse? I hope there's different ways you write those things. And each genre comes, uh, it carries with it certain expectations. What are you expecting when you hear something like, once upon a time, probably fantasy, uh, or maybe to all persons, let it be known that I, James Steele of 122.75 Southeast 106th Avenue, Happy Valley, Oregon 97086, the undersigned principal do hereby grant, and if I continue on, you probably think I'm reading a contract. So you kind of get an idea sometimes when you read scripture, you go, oh, okay, this is, this is poetry. Or, oh, wow, this is a historical document. And so we, we need to take genre into account when you study the word. Study God's Word. So here are 10 different genres that are that you'll find in the pages in your Bible. Um, one of them is the Gospels. It's a, it's, a, it's a genre. You have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, which tell of the earthly life of God the Son. And they record many of His miracles, teachings, and encounters with people. Um, and, and Matthew, Mark, and Luke are the Gospels that are called synoptic. Those are the ones that, that are seen together. That's what synoptic kind of means. And while John is kind of out there on his own, which gives us another more personal look at Jesus as well. So you have the four Gospels coming together, talking about uh, the life of Jesus. And each Gospel writer had a specific audience in mind as well. Matthew wrote to the Jewish audience. You have a Jewish audience. Mark had a Roman audience. Luke wrote to a, a Greek audience. And John was more of the uh, universal or Gentile audience in that way. And it's pretty amazing that between these writers... The gospel was directed to all kinds of people of, of that time. Jews, the Romans, the Greek, the Gentile. Everyone was reached in that area. The major focus, though, in these gospels is the birth of the new covenant through the death and burial and resurrection of Jesus. And each writer had a different focus in that as well, too. But when you read the gospels, look for what they reveal to us about God through Jesus. Uh, and look for what they reveal about the character and establishment of the kingdom of God as well. The kingdom of God where we turn the other cheek. The kingdom of God where we, we go the second mile. Where we forgive those who hurt us 77 times 7. Or, or, or where the greatest serve. Where people do to, to others as they would have them do unto them. Kingdom of God. Another uh, genre you find in, in Scripture is the epistles. These are letters. Much of the New Testament is in the genre of the, of the epistle. And, and uh, the epistle are great because they are probably the most straightforward books in the Bible. You read through them and it's like, wow, I, leaving nothing out there, it, it's pretty straightforward. They, they were written by an author to an individual person, usually, or, or a church to deal with specific situations in the church and were never intended to be exhaustive, systematic, doctrinal statements. But epistles are, are different, though, from, from private letters, because they were intended to be read publicly, even though there were times when Paul called people out by name. In Philippians 4, verse 2, um, Paul's talking about the two women, Yodia and uh, uh, Syntyche, and they weren't getting along, and, you know, pray for them, help them to get along, have one mind in Christ, and they're helping, you know, asking the church to do that. It'd be like someone coming along and saying, would you please make sure that Nicole and Katie get together and, and, and be of one mind? You know, pray for them, help them. 
And that would be read among everyone. It was like, wow, okay. It's interesting, though, sometimes that Paul would call some people out on that. But when reading the epistles, there's some things you need to, need to uh, take in mind. First of all, realize that the epistles were written to specific audiences and occasions. They were written to specific audiences and occasions. Some epistles seem like they were written for the church at large, but others are, are written to specific churches facing specific issues. You think of 1 and 2 Corinthians in that. If you take some time to try to understand the historical context for the, for the letters, you'll understand the letter much better. Why was this written? What is the theme of this letter? So to try to determine the situation that prompted the letter to be written is very important. Being able to do that, you get the background of that. Also, work to understand the logical development of the letter. How does it flow? More than any other biblical books, epistles often make a sustained argument. There's something there that's being developed and a point being made, an argument trying to be established. So we don't want to just rip out individual chapters or verses. We want to understand the whole flow of, uh, of the argument in that book, in that letter. You could even read the whole epistle in one sitting and then try to outline the argument as you go along. Also, look for commands to be obeyed and principles to be applied. You know, epistles, more than any other genre, can be applied directly to our situations. Since they, are, they were directed to Christian communities just like ours, which are trying to live as the body of Christ. So they're very good in being able to uh, identify some principles that need to be obeyed, uh, be applied and some commands to be obeyed. So look for those as you read the, those letters as well. Another genre is poetry. Poetry. You'll usually find psalms as part of this. There's other portions of uh, Scripture that it might have a song in them. Um, Mary's song. Uh, is uh, one of them as well. Hannah's song that's sung as well too, or uh, you know she she prays. Uh, all these things, poetry in this. Uh, these passages are intended to do more than impart information. They're intended to stir the heart of people. People are more familiar with them than any other part of the Bible. You, you know, you talk about Psalms and where do they go? Usually, anybody goes to Psalm 23, right? And everyone's very familiar with the Psalms. Go ahead and I just take a, a read through, just a quick read through, and not you know just browsing through them. You'll identify some 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 of these psalms by the songs you sing in church. You go, whoa! I think I remember this one. It's a, they're very identifiable among a lot of people, and they deal with shared human emotions: the joy, sorrow, pain, and anger, the betrayal, the fear, depression celebration as well as hope. So each reader automatically has a connection with the text. And some of you, uh, when you're going through certain situations in your life, you go to the Psalms, you go, I identify with that person. Lord, strike my enemies down. <laughs> Take them to the woodshed. <laughs> yeah, whatever. Uh, there's a lot of different things, though. You can go to Psalms and identify with because of the emotions that are attached to that. And sometimes we are told the specific historical event they are connected to, and this gives us a good backstory for understanding the emotions. If, if you've got a Bible that, is, that does that, some of the Psalms have a little uh, um, intro, introduction about why this Psalm is written or, or what it was used for. And uh, those are very important to read through. Don't skip over that. It gives you some background to that. Uh, but teaching doctrine is not really their primary function in this. 
And it's really good to read them aloud sometimes. Really good. <laughs> Be careful about those psalms that start talking about striking your enemy down. You might scare people around you. But, uh, but Psalm 139, verses 23 and 24, very familiar psalm. I'm sure once I start reading it, you go, oh yeah. Search me, God. Know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Psalms need to be read out loud because they just, they fill your ears, your heart, and they, they, again, point to the emotions and connect with people. Another genre that you'll find in Scripture is historical narrative. Historical narrative. Now, over 40% of the Old Testament is narrative. And historical narrative shows how God acts in history. So it's a lot about His story, God's story in history. Uh, Gordon Fee, he wrote a book, How to, study, uh, How to Read the Bible for All It's Worth. <clears throat> and he says, Bible narratives tell us things that happened, but not just any things. Their purpose is to show God at work in His creation and among His people. The narrative glorify Him, help us understand and appreciate Him, and give us a picture of His providence and protection. At the same time, they also provide illustrations of many other lessons important to our lives. For instance, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 11 and 12, says, These things happened to them as examples and were written down as warnings for us on whom the fulfillment of the ages has come. So if you think you are standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. Learn from the example of what happened in the past. Read those narratives and learn from them. That's why it's so good to go back to the Old Testament and read those stories and be reminded of what went on, what was chosen good or bad, what were the actions, godly or ungodly, and be, and be a, a learner of those things. And some things to keep in mind when reading and studying historical narratives, you know, uh, they don't normally teach a doctrine, uh, they often illustrate a doctrine, you know, illustrate it, and it's taught el- that is taught elsewhere in the Bible. They're written, they're writing history in order to make a theological point. And so you look at all the different Old Testament stories, and you can identify that and realize those things. They record what did happen, not necessarily what should have happened. And you look at First and Second Kings. Oh my goodness, all those different kings that were horrible. The things that ha- that happened. Not what should have happened. I mean, if we had what should have happened, this Bible would probably be so, so clean and crisp, we wouldn't be able to identify very well with it sometimes. So there's some things to keep in mind in, in studying historical narratives. Um, and also, too, look for values found in the people and found in God in that as well. If you read through a portion of Scripture and story, historical story, um, what what are the characters in that portion of Scripture about? How are they choosing for God, or how are they choosing against God? And uh, again, ways to be able to learn. Another genre, uh, fifth one, if it's on your, if you're following along in your notes, is prophecy. Prophecy. Now, a large portion of our Old Testament are books written by prophets, the spokesmen for God. They received a message from God, and then they communicated it to the people. And sometimes the prophets got these messages in dreams. Sometimes they got them in visions. And in the Old Testament, they function mainly to call Israel to repent and return to God. And most prophecy is pretty grim stuff. It's pretty dark. 
uh, you know, telling God's judgment because of the people's spiritual infidelity. Uh, God's turning His back on them. It's, it, it's horrible. But there are two key aspects to biblical prophecy that we need to understand and be able to um, discern from. One is foretelling. Foretelling. This is what everyone thinks about when they think about prophecy. It's foretelling is predicting the future. What does this portion of Scripture predict about my future or the future of this world or, or what's going to happen in, in political realms? Um, that's what prophets do, right? They predict the future. There are certainly lots of examples of this kind of prophecy in Scripture. Maybe the most famous prophecy in all of Scripture is Isaiah 53, in talking about uh, the sufferings of Christ. And there are many other examples like this, but foretelling is not the main point of prophetic books. Sorry to crush your spirit on that one. But the other portion of this we need to make sure we can discern from foretelling is forthtelling. Forthtelling. The main point is forthtelling. In other words, the prophets were speaking forth God's truth to the people of their own day. Generally, the message of the prophets was repent and turn back to your covenant with God because the Lord is bringing judgment. So you're doing something wrong. Watch out. God's going to get you. Repent. And you see that throughout the scripture. Now, Jonah is a perfect example as uh, he's supposed to go to Nineveh and get there and he's waiting for God's judgment. Well, the people repented. They learned. We don't know the end of the whole story of all that. But uh, again, prophet coming and telling them that they're in trouble and they need to get right with God. It's important to keep this distinction of foretelling and forthtelling in mind and to be careful not to read the prophetic books as just a series of predictions about the future because we miss the author's intended meaning. We miss the aim. That is the main thing we're trying to get at when we read and study the Bible. So interwoven with the forthtelling is a great deal of foretelling going on. So be able to discern between those and what's happening there. And many people are tempted to read the prophetic parts of Scripture as detailed blueprints for all of human history, but they're really not. Um, less than 2% of the writing of Old Testament prophecy is messianic. Less than 5% describes the new covenant age. And less than 1% concerns predicting uh, future events. So at least 92% just the basic message of God calling His people back to Himself. And so we need to keep that in mind. The fourth telling is uh, very, uh, very evident. And prophecy shows us God's wrath towards sin and His willingness to be merciful. That is the, that is the fourth telling. And it points us ahead to Christ, and that is the foretelling. So we need to let the text speak for itself, and uh, when, especially when we're reading through prophecy. Another genre uh, in the Bible is wisdom. And we'll see like Job, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes. Wisdom is the discipline of applying truth to one's life in light of experience. What have you gone through? What is the knowledge you have? put it into practice, you get wisdom. So these books deal with the real issues of life. They're incredibly practical books meant to help us live well in the world. Job, about pain and hardships. Proverbs, about the relationships that we have with others. Ecclesiastes, the meaning of life. All these things providing wisdom for our lives. And they are often poetic, and they use uh, things... Uh, a term, uh, literary, literary term called parallel, 
parallelism. And <laughs> hard to say sometimes um, for me when I'm speaking fast. But it's basically repeating an idea or a thought for emphasis. You'll see it in Proverbs quite a bit. And it's repeated, a phrase is repeated right after it. And you go, wait, didn't I just read that? <laughs> yeah, you did. You're hearing it again. So context is often very important in, in wisdom literature as well. Now think about the book of Job. Job is, is talking with his friends, and they take turns giving very long speeches. And at the end of it all, God rebukes Job's friends and praises Job. But we need to remember that lots of the things Job says are wrong. Some things that he was talking about. And in the same way, parts of Ecclesiastes are difficult to understand as well. You read through that book, you're going, what is Solomon talking about here on some of these things? But the last few verses in Ecclesiastes put everything into context. Ecclesiastes 12, verses 13 and 14. Now all has been heard. Here's the conclusion of the matter. Fear God and keep His commandments, for this is the duty of all mankind. For God will bring every deed into judgment, including every hidden thing, whether it is good or evil. So we have to read Ecclesiastes in light of those concluding comments. The wisdom literature often gives general teachings. Not everything in the book of Proverbs can be taken as a definite promise or absolute command. Wisdom gives us a lot of general teachings to live by. For example, you look at Proverbs chapter 3. Verses 7 through 10, it says, Do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and shun evil. This will bring health to your body and nourishment to your bones. Honor the Lord with your wealth, with the first fruits of all your crops. Then your barns will be filled to overflowing and your vats will brim over with new wine. Uh, this is uh, poetry here and wisdom literature at the same time. But notice there are two statements in that portion of Scripture. The first one is, Be humble and fear the Lord and it will heal you. You will get better uh, physically. And the second, honor God with your money and you will prosper. You'll get rich. So is that really what's going on here? These are generally true statements that should guide us as we go through life. But Proverbs is not teaching that Christians will always be healed if they are faithful. It doesn't work that way. The Bible nowhere teaches that. And in fact, lots of biblical saints suffered physically. And Proverbs isn't teaching that you'll get rich if you just give some, some of your money to God. But it's generally true that a life of obedience to God, a life of humility and generosity, leads to blessings in your life. So let these be guidelines for life, not just the promise, not just promises going, oh, if I do this, this will happen. If I do this, this will happen. They are guidelines. Keep that in mind. So use these books as an interpretive lens for life. Then there's another genre, uh, the legal or the law genre. This is your Leviticus and huge chunks of the Exodus and Numbers and Deuteronomy. Those books you probably don't go very much for devotions. Um, but uh, this is tied to the old Mosaic co covenant, not ours. And its primary functions for Christians is to teach us about the holiness of God. So even if you might not go to those for your devotions, it's very good to go to because you learn more about God's holiness. Who is this God that we serve? What is this holiness that He is? And also speaks about the depth of relationship He desires to have with us. So uh, we need to keep that in mind when we look at uh, these 
the genre of law and uh, legal genre. Now, what was, what was God teaching them about Himself, about He wanted them to live? And then we can learn from that as well, too. Another genre, the book of Acts. If you look at that, this is a historical record of uh, both the birth and the incredible growth of the early church. It shows how the early church functioned and what they were devoted to, giving us many times a, a pattern to follow. And we see the church confronting real issues from persecution to famine and doctrine, as well as disagreements. And there are many great sermons recorded in that book as well, too. But a great book to read to learn more about how the early church began and how the Holy Spirit acted upon the church. And then another genre that's probably pretty popular is apocalyptic. There we go. Apocalyptic. Uh, these are your, uh, it's a very common genre in the first century, but it maybe it's a little foreign to us. It might be popular because it's so mysterious. You know, what, what's, what's the, these books talking about? But the name uh, apocalyptic comes from the Greek word to reveal. And so Revelation is apocalyptic. Uh, and along with parts of Daniel and Second Thessalonians and Matthew and Ezekiel and a few others as well. But apocalyptic literature is like the, the pulling back of the veil to let us see the great spiritual conflict, which is generally invisible to us. It allows us to see the true meaning and destination of history. And there are a few characteristics that are common to much apocalyptic uh, literature. And I just want to list a few here. But, but basically, it's a, it starts out with a prophet who sees a vision, and then a revelation brought by an angel, and then uh, a strange symbolism, some numbers, and then a message of judgment on the present age, and then expectation of future salvation. So all these things, if you read through apocalyptic uh, genre in Scripture, you'll see this pattern kind of play out. A good example can be found in Daniel 7, where Daniel receives a vision of four beasts. And uh, in verse, uh, first three verses, he says, In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel had a dream, and visions passed, passed through his mind as he was lying in bed. He wrote down the substance of his dream, and Daniel said, In my vision at night I looked, and there before me were the four winds of heaven, churning up the great sea. Four great beasts, each different from the others, came up out of the sea. And I won't continue on with it, but it, you think, Wow, what a dream there, Daniel. What, what's going on with your mind? But we... We think of that and we go, there's a lot going on there. What does it all mean? But notice the characteristics of the apocalyptic here, as we already mentioned here, those, those, uh, the pattern. Um, uh, prophet sees a vision. Daniel sees a vision. There's no angel mentioned here, although in, in verse 16, Daniel asks a bystander to explain it to him, who is kind of like an angel. Most likely. And there is a weird symbolism of these terrifying beasts, which represent four great empires. And these empires will all be destroyed in turn, so there's a message of judgment on the present age. And there is a future salvation in verse 13. One like a son of man who will come and establish a kingdom of peace. So you see the pattern laid out in these apocalyptic uh, portions of Scripture. Now, unfortunately, this is probably the genre of Scripture that is most abused and misunderstood. You guys went through Revelation, and you're going through Daniel right now, I believe. And uh, it can be easily misunderstood in, in uh, trying to interpret and understand these things. 
But if you hear someone saying something really crazy about the Bible, it probably stems from this type of thing. There's a good chance it has to do with the understanding of one of these apocalyptic texts. And that isn't surprising, as these are the hardest texts in the Bible to understand. Uh, and like I said, very mysterious. But let me share some guidelines about this real quick, about the apocalyptic uh, uh, scriptures and how to, how to guard against misunderstanding these texts. Now, first of all, read these texts with humility. Read them with humility. God's Word is true. It's unchanging. But we should always be willing to change our understanding if we learn something better. Even with Revelation, don't get stuck in a certain pattern. Read Scripture as Scripture is coming to you and be open to what Scripture has for you. We should work hard to try to understand what these texts are saying. And some parts aren't too hard. Even Daniel 7, chapter 7 is pretty manageable. But other texts are quite difficult. We need to acknowledge our limitations and do the best we can to understand. But not feel bad if we don't have perfect knowledge. It's okay. It's okay not to understand. Even if you've gone through a Sunday school class of Revelation and you're at the other end of it going, well, I should have understood all these things, but I'm still got questions. That's okay. That's all right. Another guideline to follow is to read these texts with good resources. There are so many scholars that have gone through studying these portions of Scripture uh, over the many, many years, and uh, we've got so much at our fingertips that we can hear from these people. And not just go, oh, that person says that? I believe it. <laughs> Read it. Take it in. And then be able to form uh, what, how God is, is uh, leading you in those portions of Scripture. It's always helpful to learn from good teachers and, and read good books when we study the Bible. But it's particularly helpful to do that when you read apocalyptic literature. The best thing to do is to compare a few different books on the subject and, again, try to glean from those people who've done a lot of study in that. And one final guideline on this is to read these texts theologically. Theologically. This is really the most important thing about apocalyptic literature. The primary purpose of these books is to teach us to trust in God. Trust in God. The message of books like Revelation and Daniel is that God is in control even when things are at their worst. We can trust Him and persevere in the faith even when it is difficult because we know, we know He will set things right in the end. It'd be, it would be nice to know exactly what uh, 666 means. How, you know, how would people get the, the number of the beast? Uh, watch out for that. Or what the thousand years in Revelation 20 is all about, but that isn't the main point. The main point is God, realizing that He's the one we need to be ready for. Be ready, whether pre, post, or mid-trib. Be ready. Be ready. If you get that, you're doing okay. And one last genre. I'm about done here. Parables. You see it all throughout. Jesus uses parables quite a bit. Jesus told many of them. And some are just uh, one verse, others are much longer. But basically, parable is an earthly story with a heavenly meaning. And so when you read different ones like um, uh, found in the Gospels, you get, you get a, uh, an earthly story, and within that you find a heavenly meaning in that and be able to apply it to your life. Um, parables, the, the Greek word means uh, to come alongside or cast alongside of. So parables 
cast a, a powerful truth alongside of a good story. So parables are great because they're easy to remember, um, and, and stories are easy to listen to. They grab people's attention. And, and Jesus knew how to do that as he used those parables to teach what he was trying to get across to the people. But they're intended to persuade people to action, to embrace a new or difficult truth, or to convict them of ungodly behavior with strong language that is often shocking. A lot of times, Pharisees and Sadducees were ready to stone Jesus right at that moment, kill him because of what he was talking about. Most parables have one central meaning. They are not allegories where every part of the story has a specific meaning. So don't try to read everything into those parables. For example, people miss the central meaning of the ten virgins and their lamps by trying to figure out what the oil in the lamp represents. You know, sometimes you get in Bible studies and they get a little, little deep on some of those things. But uh, when the central meaning is to be ready when the Lord comes. So be careful on those. Um, parables can only go so far, hold up so much. But many times they have three main characters, one that re represents God, a person who is doing the right thing, and a third character doing the wrong thing. And if you read through the parables, that's basically the structure that you'll find. But uh, look for the context, and often there's a reason that Jesus tells a parable. And, and be ready for that, because, again, context is king. You need to know what's going on around those portions of Scripture. So those are the main uh, genres found in the Bible. And in order to understand a passage in the Bible, you must consider the specific genre that is written there. Because if you were to study Psalms and take it for doctrinal, you get the wrong aspect going on there. You need to be careful, again, taking genre in consideration. If you don't consider genre in studying the Bible, you could entirely miss the meaning of a passage. Like someone trying to make one of your poems a legal document. Remember, as written in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 15, do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who does not need to be ashamed and who correctly handles the word of truth. We need to correctly handle the word of truth. I trust these Sundays have been good for you to be able to realize those things, get some, some tools to be able to handle God's word correctly. And uh, we'll wrap this up next Sunday. I'm going to invite the worship team coming up. We have one more song we're going to sing. We'll send you off with. Um, but just be, be aware that God's word is living and active. It's something that continues to guide us and direct us. And in order to understand what God is trying to teach us, we need to understand his word. And so to understand his word, we need to put some effort into the principles that have been uh, mentioned here in these last few Sundays. So when you read your, 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 your Bible, when you go uh, have devotions, make sure that you're keeping in mind the different things that have been mentioned in these last few weeks. You'll get a whole bunch more out of God's word in that way. And, uh, and I trust, again, that God is using his word to continue to teach you so much. Uh, trust him. And trust His Word. It's, it's incredible how God will guide you through His Word. But we need to understand it. And so to understand it, we need to put these tools into practice. So we're going to sing this one last song and, uh, and send you off, I guess. <laughs>